You're listening to a TVO podcast. The following podcast contains coarse language, descriptions of violence, and sensitive themes which may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Previously, on Unascertained. Ontario guards killed my brother in a violent beating. Fakiri, who had a history of schizophrenia, had spent 11 days in the cell. No, no, that is so barbaric. I can remember clearly seeing him laying there in just bruises and, and lacerations. The only thing they said to my dad is that Suleiman died after an incident with the guards. That's literally the only information we have. The police know enough now to lay a charge, and it is baffling us why they continue to delay. And while a coroner's report found dozens of bruises on Solomon's body, the cause of death is listed as unascertained. Hello? Hi, Mr. Zine? Yes. I have Anthony Ouellette with me for the interview this morning. Perfect. That's great. I'm just going to pass this over to him. Before Suleiman Fakiri died at the Central East Correctional Center in Lindsay, Ontario, he spent 10 days in solitary confinement. On the 11th day, a struggle with guards resulted in his death. For someone with diagnosed schizophrenia, I found it odd that Suleiman would be placed in solitary confinement. How's it going? Good, how are you? Well, I've had better days, but can't complain really, right? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad we were able to make this happen. We've been trying to arrange this. I found Anthony Ouellette's name in a few police emails. He'd given a statement about Sully's time in segregation. We got a hold of Anthony. He was in the middle of serving a sentence at a federal penitentiary. Since he's no longer in the Lindsay jail, he was more than willing to speak with us. In 2016, Anthony was serving a seven-year sentence for robbery at the Lindsay jail. He was placed in segregation unit two during his recovery from surgery. That's where he met Suleiman. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that these officers pay for what they did. A lot of inmates are scared to stand up for themselves. Like, how was I, how was I to know that this very same thing wasn't going to happen to me. You don't know. It happens more often than not. Inmates are beat by guards, almost sometimes beat to death. I'm not protected. I'm not with my family. I'm not amongst loved ones or people that care about me. I'm in their house. They can do whatever they want to me. It really hurt me uh, seeing what happened to this poor individual that we're about to speak about and how nobody wanted to stand up for him. And how, honestly, I'm getting shivers right now with what I'm, what I'm about to tell you. I'm Yusuf Zin, and this is Unascertained. Commonly known as the Lindsay Super Jail, this facility is located in the town of Lindsay, Ontario. It was constructed in 2001, has both medium and maximum security sections, and can hold up to 1,184 prisoners. And in 2016, an Ontario Ombudsman spokesperson confirmed it was the most complained about correctional facility. That year, there were 647 complaints about access to medical care, assault, and lockdowns. And in February of 2018, correctional officers at the jail even walked off the job, citing unsafe work conditions. On December 6, 2016, a judge adjourned Suleiman's case for three more days so that he could get some medication. 
He was then moved to Segregation Unit 2, or 2SEG, due to safety concerns for him and others. This is where he would spend his last 11 days alive. 2SEG is a little different than standard segregation. Inmates are not necessarily isolated from other inmates and can participate in social interaction. Anthony Ouellette told us for him, he was able to volunteer as a cleaner and deliver mail. And during that time, he started observing Suleiman. Uh, when I first met him, he came on our range. He was put into the cell. He was very, very quiet, very timid. And it seemed like he just wanted to be by himself. Well, by four in the morning, that same day he got there, he was just going off the handle. Like, he was freaking right out, and no one knew what was going on with him. And his hands must have been swollen, because he pounded on the door with his hands for 10 hours straight. And it, and it didn't stop. It just carried on and on. He'd be screaming. He was chanting the word, Old Canada, over and over and over again, through all hours of the night for about three days. Anthony explained that during his time at the Lindsay Jail, he got to know some of the staff. I talked with the guard that brought Solomon from admittance and discharge when you first get into the facility to the range. And he said, Anthony, he was perfectly normal, speaking perfect English. Yes, sir. Even laughing with him. And he doesn't know what happened to him. And that, that's how we all started to realize that, you know, Mr. Fikiri was sick and he wasn't okay. At what point did you know or realize that he had a mental illness or that he had schizophrenia? Just because of how long I've been in prison and in out my whole life. There's lots of convicts that come in and out of jail that suffer from so many mental illnesses. So you see it. And I can tell because he'll be talking to himself. They'll be screaming, pointing and talking like somebody's there with them, but nobody's there. You know, just carrying on in a way where you knew that he, he, wasn't, he wasn't well. Over the next three days, Sully's mental health deteriorated. He refused medication, stopped speaking English, and rarely kept his clothes on. I can tell you, he was deathly afraid of the officers. Were there any interactions with correctional officers that stuck out to you? Oh, man, where do I start? They were making fun of him nonstop, bugging him. They thought it was a joke. The guards would do rounds and boot his door to startle him. He'd be, he'd be quiet. He'd quiet down for five minutes, staring out the window, and they'd boot his door to make him jump to startle him and laugh at him. Or two female officers would be walking together. They'd stop at his door and they'd be laughing. And I heard clear as day, because I guess they saw his uh, private area, and said, oh, look, it looks like a fur coat with a button, laughing at him. I'm like, that's not right, man. I don't know how you officers think that's funny. It's inhumane. You guys are treating this guy like a monster, like, he, like he's locked up like a fucking dog in the cage. Like, he doesn't deserve this, this treatment. And they used to oh, let, mind your business. Mind your business, or you're next. Anthony, who is Muslim, tried to help Sully calm down. I went to his window, and I'm like, Salam alaikum, brother. I'm like, do you need anything? Are you okay? And he says, no, 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 help, help, help. And I said, are you hungry? He goes, yes, yes. He's like, I want food. 
So I slid a canteen under the door and he was standing there eating the canteen right in front of us. And he was calm, he was okay. Everything was fine. And, I, and then I'm like, brother, do you want to pray? And I called my other Muslim brother over and we started praying with him. And for that couple of minutes we're at his door, he was quiet as a mouse. His eyes were closed. He was like breathing deeply. He was somewhere else. Like he wasn't irate, he was not flipping out. He had this calmness over him. And then it's almost like as soon as we left, he felt unsafe again. He just started flipping out again. It sounds like also you kind of went out of your way to make sure Suleiman was taken care of. Uh, how often did you find yourself having to do that? Every day. Every day. Every day. Anthony wasn't the only one who tried to help. The Fakiri family attempted to visit Suleiman four times, but they never actually got to visit him. They were always turned away. I found out that Mr. Uh, Solomon Fakiri's family came that week to visit him. And how I know there's proof of that is because I was handing out mail and there were money receipts that I had and I delivered them to Solomon from his family for canteen money. So we know that his family came to visit him. And during that week, all this happened. We were not locked down at all. There was one day we were locked down out of all those days. We wanted to ask the Lindsay Jail about Suleiman's family being turned away from visitation four times. But in order to do that, we had to go through the ministry. And they declined to comment. These next details are tough to process. Okay, well, if you're an officer and you go to an individual cell and you see that they're using the washroom and picking up their feces out of the toilet and throwing it at the walls and covering their own body in feces, wouldn't you know that they're not okay, that they're sick, like you need to get them to a doctor? Is that something you you witness personally? I witnessed that with my own eyes. What was the reaction by the guards? Did they help him to get clean? They were laughing at him. No guard would open his door because he was covered in feces. They didn't want to deal with him. Anthony said he often saw water leaking out of Suleiman's cell. For some reason, I don't know why, if he if he did it or if his toilet was just broken, but his toilet was flooded. In a statement found in the Kawartha Lakes Police Report, a witness said the cleaner was sick of mopping up water in the hallway and decided to plug Suleiman's door from the bottom. When he stripped down off all his clothes and I looked in his cell, he had six inches of water on his floor. His mattress was floating in the water. He had no bedding, no clothes. Like everything was soaking wet for days and days and days. And then one day, the water stopped leaking. They shut his water off because the water kept flooding out onto the range and the guards didn't want to walk through it. If he didn't have any running water, not even to drink. So they turned his water off completely? Yeah. Things only got worse from there. Anthony saw that Suleiman was not eating food, and a witness statement said that he started drinking from the toilet. Okay, that's another thing too is, you see how he had the water in his cell and whatnot? Mm -hmm. Officers would open his hatch, make him stand at the back of his cell, put the styrofoam meal in, and drop the fucking meal tray, pardon my language, 
in his cell and slammed the hatch shut. And we even said, officer, you know there's six inches of water and there's feces all over his cell? Like, what's wrong with you? Why are you not feeding this man? Like, why aren't you guys showering him or taking him to a hospital? This shit that I was seeing was some stuff you'd only see on TV. I've never seen any of this stuff ever happen in prison. On December 9th, Sully missed his court appearance. According to a court transcript, a correctional officer said that he was, quote, in crisis. As a result, his matter was pushed back three more days. During that time, Anthony desperately tried to get Sully help by appealing to correctional officers, doctors, and nurses. Oh, the guards would always tell me, you know, shut the F up or mind your business or, you know, uh, it's not your problem, we'll deal with it, we're, you're, we're the guards, you're the inmate, you do, you, you do your time, let him do his. Sully's care remained in the hands of the jail staff. But also, I will tell you, just to keep it real with you and the public, not every officer is the same. There are many officers in here that do a very damn good job to bend over backwards to make sure we have everything we need. They go against the other officers. You know, they're the heroes in my eyes, man. There were many officers that tried to help Solomon. There was a good bunch of us that finally started basically flipping right out. And two of us refused to lock into our cell until we saw a sergeant. The sergeant ended up coming to see us. Honestly, I've done a lot of time and I'm always against officers for the way they treat us. But uh, this officer uh, is a very kind, genuine, normal, good-hearted, hardworking man. Because as soon as he saw the state that Solomon was in, he started freaking right out swearing at his officers, what the bleep is wrong with you? Bleep, 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 bleep. Go get him clean bedding, clean towel, clean clothes. Bleep, 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 bleep. Get the door open. Let's get this man a shower. He was he was so angry. He was like, Mr. Fakiri, uh, are you okay? He's yelling and screaming, no, 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 no. Help, help. Finally, he got him calmed down because I guess he just kept talking softly to him. So finally, he got him right to the door and said, Solomon, are you okay? He's like, I'm here to help you. What do you want? Do you want shower? And he's like, yes, yes, shower, shower, shower. They got the door open. They got him into the shower. Solomon was in such a bad state. He couldn't even find the shower button to turn the water on. He, he couldn't function. So the sergeant got into the shower himself and put soap on his rubber gloves and was scrubbing this man, scrubbing his hair, helping him get clean because he couldn't even wash himself. Had you ever seen that before? A correction officer uh, going to that extent to, to make sure they're cleaned and, and safe? Not in 20 years of being in and out of prison. Like, I, I was so happy that now I'm like, okay, He's, he's getting taken care of. Like, he's safe now. Like, um, And then I come back out after lunch lockup. He's got all his clothes ripped off, and we're going through this all over again. On December 12th, Sully appeared in court via video link. His brother, Yusuf Fakiri, and a nurse from the Lindsay Jail attended in person. Yusuf explained his brother's mental health history and made a passionate appeal to have him sent to a hospital. The nurse also explained what Sully's mental health state had been like for the past few days. 
The judge acknowledged Suleiman's mental health had deteriorated and ordered him to be transferred to Ontario Shores Mental Health Hospital in Whitby. The nurse said she was more than willing to arrange it. But three more days went by and Suleiman was never transferred to Ontario Shores and Anthony was forced to continue to watch Sully descend into an even worse state. The one time, and it broke my heart to see him like this, I, I went to the shower and I looked in his cell and I'm like, brother, I'm like, do you want clean clothes? I'm like, do you want to put clothes on? And now he's not answering me, period. He's just looking with a blank stare like right through me. December 15th. Suleiman was about to be transferred to Segregation Unit 8, or 8-Seg. The ministry told us that 8-Seg now renamed to 8 Stabilization, is the unit used to evaluate, assess, and stabilize male inmates with medical, physical, mental health, and behavioral concerns. It's meant to be a short-term stay. For Suleiman, it was extremely short. I remember in the morning, he got wheeled off from our range in a wheelchair, and he was completely naked, and the guards just threw a sheet over him like he was a ghost and wheeled him out because... Uh, he was covered in feces, and as well, I guess they didn't want the other inmates to see him walking, or other females or whatever, to see him walk around naked. That morning, Anthony got the attention of a staff member and tried one last time to get Sully help. I was yelling for him, and he stuck his head over to see me. I'm like, send this guy to a hospital. He's like, he shouldn't even be in jail. And uh, he looks me dead in my face and says... I call the shots around here. And then he walked out. And that's the last time I ever saw him. When I got back from court, I seen one female officer crying and I asked what happened. She herself said, yeah, like, sadly, we don't know how, but Solomon passed away. And, like, that's when it, like, stabbed me in my heart that, oh, my God, Solomon's gone. We reached out to the ministry for a statement on everything Ouellette told us, but they declined to comment. We also looked for statements from correctional officers in the police report. Based on the records, we know the police did interview the correctional officers involved in Solomon's restraint on December 15th but it's unclear whether the ones from Tuseg were interviewed at all. And there are actually quite a number of statements in the police report from other inmates and paramedics, but no statements from any correctional officers were included in the Fakiri family's copy of the report. I just couldn't understand how these things could happen in a government-run institution. How does this stuff just get swept under the rug? And where's the oversight? Good afternoon, Howard Sapers. Hi, Howard. This is Yusuf Zin calling. Hello, Yusuf. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well. Between 2004 and 2016, Howard Sapers was Canada's correctional investigator and watchdog. His job was to report to Parliament on what was happening inside Canada's jails. In 2017, he left that job to do an independent review of the Ontario prison system. In fact, the reason why I took on the assignment is because I was assured that the government was serious about wanting to transform corrections in Ontario. Did you ever visit 
correctional facilities in person, um, speaking to inmates or uh, correctional officers on site? <laughs> with 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 some with some frequency, um, I can't even count the number of jails and prisons I've been into in Canada and in other places around the world. Was there anything you can tell us about the Central East Correctional Center? In my visits there, I, I can tell you that um, there were a couple of things that struck me. Uh, one was the use of uh, I, I don't know how else to describe them other than cages. Uh, areas that actually look like large cages were constructed, and these were to be used for out-of-cell time for people that were otherwise in segregation or in, in, in some kind of restriction. He's not exaggerating. Picture a very large dog kennel, and that's what Howard saw on his tour of the Lindsay Jail. Some are used for professional visits with a lawyer or social worker, and others are for group programming. We don't know if Suleiman ever found his way into one of these, but his regular-sized segregation cell wasn't much bigger. The argument was is that this was better than leaving people locked in their cell for 23 hours a day. I don't really buy that argument. Um, I think that there's lots of alternatives that don't require taking people out of a small cell and put them into a larger cage and considering that to be progress. Out of 12,000 people placed in segregation between July 2018 and June 2019 alone, 46% had mental health alerts on file. And in 2020, that number was approximately 32% but not just for segregation, for all inmates in Ontario jails. How does someone like Suleiman Fakiri, who has diagnosed schizophrenia that the, the facility is aware of, end up in solitary confinement? Well, you're supposed to be in segregation uh, for enumerated purposes. So that could be to provide uh, safety to an individual, um, and it could be to provide uh, security um, for the institution. Unfortunately, and what I found in my work on segregation in Ontario was all too often people were being held in segregation because they would be either difficult to manage in a general population range or they would be vulnerable in a general population range. This meant that many people with known and diagnosed uh, mental health issues were being held in segregation. Is it legal to do that? Well, that's a very, you know, that should be a simple question. It's not. It's a complex question. Here's why. Back in 2012, a former inmate named Christina John filed a human rights complaint against Ontario's Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services. She had spent over 200 days in segregation in an Ottawa prison. During that time, she said she was beaten, deprived of basic hygiene privileges, and denied access to cancer medication. She also struggled with a mental illness, had family visits cancelled, and her water turned off. A year later, a settlement was reached with the province. This resulted in 10 recommendations on how to reform Ontario's correctional system, which the provincial government committed to putting in place. One of the main recommendations was to forbid segregation for any individuals with a mental illness, unless it was a last resort. But in 2016, a story was released that confirmed the Ontario government had broken its own commitments. There was a critical incident that I think really captured everybody's attention, and it was the continuous segregation for over 1,500 days of a young Indigenous man from the Thunder Bay area. The young man's name is Adam Capay. He's a 24-year-old Aboriginal of the Laxul First Nation. He had not been sentenced for a crime. 
and he had been locked up in solitary confinement for four years. When that case became public, everybody from the Premier's office down made public comments about how that was unacceptable in Ontario and something would be done about it. Uh, it following that, they asked me if I would do the review and first look at the use of segregation. From there, the Independent Review of Ontario Corrections was formed. By January, a few months, I mean, barely two months later, a small team had been assembled. And it really was um, a very intense and very fast rush to put out that first report. That's Abby Deshman. She's the director of the Criminal Justice Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. She also worked with Howard Sapers as an advisor on the Independent Review to conduct a report on Ontario Corrections. Trying to figure out what's happening in correctional institutions from the outside, it's like banging your head against a brick wall. You um, have very little contact usually with people who are on the inside, be it inmates, prisoners, or, or guards. So to, for the first time in my life, um, be able to ask questions and demand answers from the government and actually get stats about, you know, who is behind bars, how much time they were spending in their cells, how much time they're spending in solitary confinement, what are the policies like? Abby found looking behind the curtain of Ontario jails to be extremely fascinating. It was also profoundly disturbing because, you know, the findings of the report were that solitary confinement is routinely used as the behavior management tool for people who were suicidal, who are mentally ill, who were exhibiting any uh, behavior that had a basis in a mental illness. If they couldn't handle it in the general population setting, that person would really just be going to segregation. And there was inadequate medical care and really a lot of incredibly profound harm being done to people. Solitary confinement for those with mental disabilities is actually prohibited under international law. Even if domestic law allows it, anything over 15 days is considered by the United Nations as a form of psychological torture. And in 2019, an Ontario judge ruled that it amounts to cruel and unusual punishment. Howard, Abby, and the Independent Review team produced three reports and made 162 recommendations on how to reform Ontario corrections, particularly segregation. And after each report was presented, the government said that action would be taken on all the recommendations. And the, the ultimate expression of that was the creation of a brand new Corrections Act for the province of Ontario. But again, we never saw a detailed implementation plan to address those recommendations. We heard that the government was committed to addressing them, but never found out exactly how they were going to do that. A little Civics Lesson 101. In order for anything to become law in Ontario, it has to go through three readings in the Ontario Legislature, receive royal assent, and be proclaimed into force. And that act actually received uh, royal assent. It was passed by the Ontario legislature, but the current government has never proclaimed it into force. After all the reports and recommendations were put forward by the independent review, the result was a new Corrections Act that would reform segregation. But after a change in government, and as of recording this podcast, it has not been proclaimed into force. That means it's still legal in Ontario for inmates with mental illnesses to be held in solitary confinement. 
some people are calling for solitary confinement to be banned entirely. Do you think it should be abolished completely or reformed? Um, well, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing about abolishing segregation. Often, it's in name only. In fact, critics of the federal move to 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 eliminate administrative segregation and create these structured intervention units. Um, these critics claim that this is just um, old wine and new bottles. That that this is just segregation by another name. The reality is that any correctional facility, the system will find a way to isolate individuals who are problematic for a variety of reasons. So whether we call it segregation or supervised intervention or whatever we call it, um, there has to be an external independent oversight of the use of this kind of custody because it can be such a dangerous form of custody. We asked the ministry to comment on segregation cells being used for mental health beds. They responded by telling us about a $500 million investment by the Ontario government to transform and modernize corrections over the next five years. But that still didn't answer the question as to why inmates with mental illnesses are put in those cells in the first place. Everything Howard and Abby told me made me think, if the Ontario government had taken these reforms more seriously and made changes sooner, inmates like Suleiman might still be alive today. One of the things when I read about what Suleiman Fakiri experienced, the fact that other inmates, other prisoners were trying to get help for him, um, were calling on staff to do something, all of those things um, just uh, rang true to me in terms of what people's experiences are. I don't know, I just find it deeply disturbing. So that doesn't surprise you when you read that stuff? No. It breaks my heart, frankly. Um, it's an extremely troubling case. The loss of life is tragic. The grief of the family members is tragic. And, 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 the, and, and, and the challenges are around accountability and clarity about just what happened and why is so discouraging. So these are the kinds of incidents that reinforce just how easy it is for things to go tragically and fatally wrong if, if we don't do corrections right. After Suleiman's death, news spread around the jail and made its way to Anthony Ouellette. And I was just, it brought tears to my eyes. Like, it, it brings tears to my eyes right now to talk about it, but like, uh, it's, it's, I'll never forget the feeling that I, <clears throat> that I had that day when I was told what happened to him. Very quickly, rumors started circulating amongst inmates about how Suleiman died. My cell partner's like, the guards killed him. And I'm like, what do you mean the guards killed him? He's like, the guards all jumped on him, suffocated him, he couldn't breathe, he started throwing up and having a panic attack. And they were just, they were beating him up and smothering him, like they were all piled on top of him, and he died. Carved into the big steel door, I saw R.I.P. Solomon Fikuri. Written on the bottom of the bunk bed, R.I.P. Solomon Fikuri. Anthony was one of the few people who observed Suleiman for those 10 days. While the police report says that Suleiman was being assaultive, for Anthony, that didn't make sense. He's not a bad guy. And one thing I'll tell you, I can bet my life on it, he would not attack them. So if any officer saying that 
he was lunging towards them or attacking them or that's bullshit because every time I've seen them open this guy's door, he does not want them to even touch him. He's scared, he's terrified. This is an individual that did not need to be in prison. He needed to be in a hospital. I've seen what he looked like the day he arrived on my range. That individual came into this facility without one single mark on his body. And, and you're telling me he had all these bruises and uh, all over his neck, his chest, his legs. He had cuts on his shins. Like, where does this all come from? It seemed like there were two versions of events. The police report called it a physical altercation, and inmates called it a beating. So, which is true? A 10-month-long investigation by Kawartha Lakes Police was conducted after Sully's death. And besides Anthony's testimony, there were other troubling aspects of the case. A paramedic who couldn't get a straight story. Jail staff who were quietly fired. And contradicting accounts of just what happened inside that cell. What is your emergency? Hi, uh, I'm a nurse at Central East Correctional Center. I just need to confirm the address. Next time on Unascertained. No, he has no medical history. He's got a history of, <laughs> yes, this kid's pretty. The superintendent there started getting antsy and almost having attitude with me a little bit because I was asking all these questions. They won't tell me anything. All I know is I'm being stonewalled. And when you get stonewalled, it makes you very suspicious. Unascertained is written and produced by me, Yusuf Zin, and Kevin Young. Kevin Young is also our audio engineer. Our story editor is Michelle Shepard. Our intern is Selena Gallardo. Our legal counsel is Willa Marcus. Katie O'Connor is our producer for TVO Podcasts. The executive producer of Digital for TVO is Lori Few. The executive for Current Affairs and Documentaries for TVO is John Ferry. Theme song and music by Blue Dot Sessions. Unascertained is produced by Innerspeak and TVO.